Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Mike Mathis, and if we haven't met, um, I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Redeemer, and if this is your first time, you've been welcomed. I just want to welcome you, too. It's not an accident that any of us are in this room right now. So I just want to say you're, you're most welcome here with us. We're really glad that you're here. I'm, I'm really excited about this passage from uh, Philippians 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, there's some really amazing things that we're going to look at that I think the, that I'm praying for the Lord to show us. And know this too, if you're in this room right now, I've been praying for you this week. I know we as a staff have been praying for you this week, that you be edified and that your heart would be stirred up to behold Jesus this morning. That's something we can do together. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, asking him to help us uh, behold amazing things. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your word is true, that you have revealed yourself to us to your creation. Lord, we thank you that you have given us Jesus, that in him we can have life. Oh Lord, would you help us to behold Jesus this morning? By your spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start, before we get into our passage this morning, I want to start with an illustration. Some of you, like me, maybe you love trees. My favorite tree is actually called an aspen tree. Not something I grew up with, but uh, my father lives in a state in the United States called Colorado, which is in the mountains. And when we go visit them in the summer, one of the favorite things for my wife and our family to do is go hiking, something we really love. We love going among the mountains, the trees, the forests, and the trails. And the first time we went there, though, we were were climbing, we were hiking, and all of a sudden, we saw not just one, but a bunch of aspen trees. I didn't even know that's what they were called. But aspen trees grow in cooler climates, some some mid-latitude climates. But one thing I noticed about them is that there were a lot. I thought it was a different kind of tree at first. And later on, I was told, no, it's an aspen tree. And you can tell, because there's not just one, there's a bunch of them. I wondered why that was the case, because there were a lot. They, they had these beautiful leaves in the fall, and what I found out was that they're actually connected to roots underground. They grow together in what they call a stand, or these groups, because they're connected. They depend on each other which I thought was a really interesting thing that you always see them together, always a forest of them, kind of whitish bark with kind of dark lines, beautiful. They stand side by side. And so as we we go into the book of Philippians, our passage, I want to start with just a brief context because I think that's important so that we can understand our passage rightly. This, Pastor Dave has been preaching through the book of Romans for a while now. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you've heard some of that. So this book of Philippians was also a letter written by the Apostle Paul, this one to the church in Philippi. So Philippi is in Macedonia, which is north of Greece. 
The Apostle Paul planted this church here. You can look back in Acts 16 and see that. You see the planting of this church there in Philippi. He had a dream where a a Macedonian called out to him, come and help us. So Paul and his companions went to Macedonia. They came to Philippi. And when they came there, the first three converts, you had Lydia, who was a businesswoman. You had a slave girl who was demon-possessed, who was liberated. And then you had a Philippian jailer who Paul met while he was in jail. So Paul plants this church, and those were the first three converts. Later on, Paul writes this letter, probably from a Roman prison this time, 13 years, probably 13 years after this church was started. As an encouragement, there was some division in there, but mostly as an encouragement, exhortation to this church. So, some of the things we've been singing about this morning, unity is a theme of this book. It's a theme of the passage we're going to look at now. A oneness of mind, a care for other believers, a standing side by side against opposition. And we can't miss this. Christ himself is the foundation of all of that. So let's look at verse 27 with me, beginning of this passage. You see in your text, it starts with the word only, which is kind of a strange way to start a sentence. Only. It it causes, it gives us pause. We need to look back a little bit. In, In the text previous to verse 27, Paul had said some very startling and famous things that he expected that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by death or by life, and that to him, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's an astounding thing that he would say. And then following that, Paul said, but I expect to live. Why? For your joy and progress in the faith. It's important that I help you continue Something as Christians, we have a privilege of seeing others' joy and progress in the faith. So when Paul says that word only, he's saying in light of all these things, this is how you need to live. So let's read that first verse together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way to translate manner of life is as worthy citizens. Other English translations use that. That word citizen is in the original language. Even if you have your ESV Bible, you may see a footnote that says it at the bottom. That's a really important concept for us to consider as we're looking at this passage. So he tells them, live in light of these things, that you have grace, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the Roman and Greek world, citizenship mattered tremendously. His readers, the earliest hearers of this audience, they would have understood that. For a citizen was one who had certain rights protected under law and responsibilities that went with that too. So you might have been a citizen of Rome, a citizen of a particular city-state or a republic. You might get to elect representatives depending on your government. In Rome, you had the right to a, a trial by a jury of your peers. If you, if you read through the book of Acts, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship on a few different occasions. Citizenship mattered. It was a legal belonging that citizens had. 
allegiance to the state. But what Paul is saying here is that you, Philippians, are citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. That citizens are collectively part of something larger than themselves, but in this case, you together live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your first allegiance is to Christ's kingdom. Another thing about Philippi, it was a Roman colony. And some estimates are that up to a quarter of those living in Philippi were retired Roman soldiers. And he's saying, your citizenship is not to Rome first, but to the kingdom of Christ. I mean, think about us. We can move overseas. You can speak a different language in the country you move to than your home. Yet as Christians, we can be, we're citizens of the same kingdom. For those in Christ, the passport that matters most is the one that we all share. Because in Christ, we all have the same spiritual passport. So Paul is saying, live in light of these truths. Live in light of, of what the life that you have in the gospel. So here's some questions. What, is it, what does he mean? What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? That in the face of opposition, we stand side by side. When it comes to each other, we love selflessly. So here's the big picture, the main point that I, I want us to see this morning. In our whole passage, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have been called to humble, selfless unity. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, we've been called to humble, selfless unity. And Paul uses that phrase side by side. It's military language, standing together. And as Christians, we should also have that same posture towards one another. So a couple parts to this. As we look at our passage, there's two sections here, all kind of in this, that same idea. Paul's going to show us there is an outward-facing unity that we as Christians stand side by side against opposition and suffering for being a Christian. But then he's also going to show us there's an inward-facing unity that we have towards each other as Christians. We're going to see both of those here in this passage. So let's start looking at the, the side-by-side outward-facing unity that Paul shows us. He's going to talk about opposition here, opposition for being a Christian. Paul experienced that. He was no stranger to that. They saw that when he came to them and planted the church. They know he's in prison now. So here's point number one. There's three points that we're going to have today. Here's point number one. So what does it mean? What is this manner worthy of the gospel? The first one is unity in facing opposition. Point one is unity in facing opposition. Look back at verse 27 with me. So stand firm in one spirit. So it's one mind. He says side by side, envisioning almost soldiers together. Not, not fighting but standing firm, enduring together. So again, that picture of the aspen trees, they're always together. There's a protection even that we'll, we'll all talk about in a minute. But Paul also uses the word striving, effort, working, laboring together. For what? Look at what Paul tells us. For the faith of the gospel. We need each other for that. Because it's worth believing in. It's worth standing for. 
What is, if we keep going in the text, what does Paul say in verse 28? Not frightened by your opponents. Earlier in the letter, Paul had referenced there were some, some preaching the gospel out of rivalry to try to make it difficult for him in prison. But I also want to point out this. We, they also saw persecution when the church was planted from the Roman world. So let me give you a little bit of, of, of a picture there. When we say the word atheist today, we think someone that believes there is no God, God does not exist. But the Christians at this point in the Roman Empire were also accused of being atheists because they only believed in the one true God. To be Roman then meant you believe in a pantheon of gods. If you're going on a trip, you may give an offering to the city of the, the God of the city in which you are going. Or that may be to the emperor. That may be to a variety of deities. And so when famine came or civil war came or disease, the idea was, well, someone didn't give the right offering. Must be the Christians, though the atheists over there. Because believing in Jesus, a God, man, who died on a cross and rose, was foolishness. It was un-Roman. We know they faced opposition. Jesus told all of us as Christians that we would face that. And so, be reminded of this too. When we look at these yous, when he's pronouns and verbs, these are in the plural. These are to the Christians, people in Philippi. So we face opposition as Christians today too. I know for some of us that's been real persecution. Christians persecuted around the world today. And for some of us, that's been real opposition from our family and those closest to us. That's, that's hard. We know that opposition is expected in the Christian life, but that doesn't make it easy. And so when Paul says standing firm, he's talking about endurance. That holding together to the faith, together when opposition comes. Loving those who oppose us and desiring them to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's not the way the world thinks. So let me ask you this. Do you know another member in our church here or another Christian in this room who's facing opposition for their faith? How can you care for that brother or sister in the days to come? How can you walk side by side with that person? Because that brother or sister needs you. They need needs all of us to know that we're with them. As Christians, all of us face opposition from Satan as well. If you use the internet at all, or social media, or you're a student who goes to a school, or you work a job. The reality is there's a growing secularism even, that worldliness that we see all over the place. It's, it's the air we breathe, but it's a siren call to destruction and shipwreck. The values of the world, comfort, they run counter to the gospel. The lie of the, that money can make us happy. That's opposition to faith. Friends, we need each other to stand firm against that, to believe the truth of the gospel and what we have in Jesus. 
So when Paul says not frightened, why would he say that? He tells us, don't be frightened because it's a clear sign. Look back at verse 28 with me. A sign of what? Of their destruction. That the opponents of the gospel will not win. Jesus has already won. Our hope is in him. He has secured our salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. That's why we're celebrating Good Friday and Easter to come. Good Friday is good because Jesus is not in that tomb anymore. We celebrate Easter because our Savior has risen. He's alive, which means when we trust in him, we're no longer dead. When it comes to opposition, Paul's words are hopeful for us too. Because opposition is frightening. It's scary. But our God wins. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ. You look around this room, we have each other. That's a gift. And the Christian life was never intended to be lived on our own. We think that sometimes, but it never was. We were always intended to live that out with other Christians. We need each other. And, and look, so let's look now, let's move down to 29 and 30. Paul presses this issue further. This is point number two now. So how, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It means grace in enduring suffering. Grace in enduring suffering. Look at verse 29 with me. We see that begin with for, meaning therefore. Because of what he's just said, re- the result of the salvation given us in Christ, the Philippians have been granted some things. They've been gifted some things. What are these? The first is faith itself. Friends, faith is a gift. We didn't stumble upon that. That was granted to us. Praise God. What a wonderful gift that is. But I want us to pause a little bit here on verse 29. If we read too carefully, we see suffering here. But what Paul is saying is that suffering itself was also granted as a gift. That they would suffer for the sake of Christ. Remember, that's the same Paul that said to live as Christ and to die as gain. But let's think about this. We can see it as a gift because... Suffering for being a Christian means that we are forced to depend and look to Jesus. That's the best place for us to be. He gives us each other, enables us to endure, to look to Jesus. And look, when suffering comes to being a Christian, we're tempted to ask why. Look, that's, that's a human response. Because suffering often is confusing. Why me? Why now? Why in this particular way, Lord? But Jesus has reminded us it's the norm for the Christian life that we should expect that. And look, this idea that's been granted to you because you get more of Jesus, that obliterates any idea or claim of the prosperity gospel. That the false claims that would say Jesus came so that you'd have prosperity here on earth and that you have great health, and that you can live your best life now. That, that completely obliterates that because that's, it's a lie. Jesus offers us something far better. He gives us himself. 
And Paul says, this is for the sake of Christ. Our suffering is for his sake. It makes us more like him. It brings him glory when we can worship even though we're suffering that the gospel would still go forward. Have you ever viewed that? Suffering as a Christian as something granted to you? That's hard. That's really hard. But it's only because of the gospel that we can actually view it that way. Our future is secure. We have endurance in Jesus. And what we await when he returns cannot compare to what we're experiencing now. So in, in sports, sometimes, at least in uh, the, the United States, we use a phrase sometimes called a fair-weather fan. Some of you may have heard that phrase before, that you may have a sports team that you like, and you are their biggest fan when they're winning. And then when they start losing, maybe you're not as big of a fan anymore. It's a lot of your support when they're winning. In some cases, maybe you even switch allegiances. Like, ah, I like this other team that's winning right now. I definitely liked them as a kid. I'll support them now. I'm not making fun of that. It's just a, a thing. But, hey, there is no such thing as a fair-weather disciple. We can't just follow Jesus when it's going well. He's good, even when things are tough. And that brings us back to living worthy of the gospel, our citizenship. Friends, if you're a Christian, you belong to him. You have belonging in Jesus that he's gifted to you. We're his. When things are going well and when they're suffering, we're his. And so when opposition comes, we have the privilege and joy to stand with each other as brothers and sisters. We need each other. All of us, this selflessness Because you know what? When you stand side by side, it's a lot harder to be selfish when you're standing with someone else. It's granted and empowered by Jesus. So let's now transition to our our last section, the, the inward unity that Jesus gives us. This is our third and last point. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It means humility in caring for one another. Selflessness, humility, and caring for one another. So let's look now to chapter 2. Look in verse 2 with me, please. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, complete my joy. It's an imperative. Complete my joy. He's planted this church. He's seen the suffering and experienced some of that with them, some disputes. So how do they complete Paul's joy? He tells them, by being of the same mind, by being one, by showing love and being of one accord. And so for the Philippian church, he then tells them in verse 3, what does that oneness, one mind look like? Counting other Christians in the church as more significant than themselves. Not from selfish ambition, not seeking their own benefit, not what is best for me, not trying to make themselves look good or simply seeking their own comfort. No, by considering other Christians as more important, seeking to meet the needs of others first. One of the reasons I love this church, I see that so often here. I'm so, so many of you, I'm, I'm so encouraged by seeing you do that. We spoke earlier of citizenship a, a few times now. Privileges and responsibilities. So let's think about Redeemer Church of Dubai now. I just want to ask some questions. 
get us thinking about that as we see others doing that. But again, just looking at our own hearts. I was talking with another brother this week about this passage, and he said something that stuck out that I want to include here. He said, you know, you can look around, for those of you who've been here for a while, especially if you're members, you can look around at people right now in your seats, and you know many of them by name. You can look them in the eye, and you know who they are. You know them by name. Those names, those relationships, how can you count those brothers and sisters that you know by name around you right now as more significant than yourself? How can you do that this week? Maybe today. Maybe there's a specific need that you can meet. Do you know someone in our church who's sick right now? That you can meet with to pray or to bring them dinner? That's a very practical thing. Maybe it's a need that you can meet. Is there a financial need that you're aware of that you personally are able to meet for another brother and sister here? Do you know another, maybe you know a brother or sister in our church who's just really down right now? Maybe that's spiritual depression, maybe that's something else, just shame, suffering. Can you encourage that brother or sister? Can you read scripture with them and remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus? Maybe they need you to do that right now. Husbands and wives, if you're married, how can you lovingly treat your spouse as more significant than yourself this week. Kids, youth, how can you lovingly treat your parents as more significant than yourself? Not begrudgingly, lovingly, even harder. Children, youth, if you have brothers and sisters, how can you count your siblings as more significant than yourself? That's tough. If you're in a community group here, how, you know people by name. Are there needs that you can meet in that community group right now? Are there those, how can you treat those in your group as more significant, more important than yourself, their needs before yours? Maybe you have time. Maybe you can serve. We, ha we have members right now serving with Redeemer Kids. <laughs> what an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus in Scripture with the youngest among us here. Maybe you can serve, or our greeting team, or the, the, the logistics and setup team. Maybe, maybe there's a way that you can serve. For some of you, maybe that's an apology. Maybe you wronged a fellow brother and sister or sister with your words or actions, and you need to apologize. You need to repent. Maybe there's some tension and you need to seek reconciliation with another brother or sister. Maybe that's counting them as more significant than yourself. And for some in this room who are Christians, maybe that is, this side-by-side, -side, maybe that's committing to a local church. Maybe that's signing up for the next membership class and pursuing membership here. Look, we believe in the importance of the local church here. It's the body of Christ. That's where this side-by-side -side and, and, and one-mindedness plays itself out. Friends, that, this is a hard edge here, isn't it? This is, this is hard. This passage cuts. Those of us who are introverts, like myself, we're not excluded from this. Just because a brother or sister is a different nationality or a different age than you 
doesn't mean that you can't count them as more significant than yourself and serve them in some way. Look, this is one of the most practical applications, I think, in all of Scripture, yet it's one of the hardest. Because apart from Christ, our hearts don't want to do this. We want to treat ourselves as more significant than the other. Pastor Dave, a few weeks ago, reminded us of the doctrine of total depravity, that apart from Jesus, our hearts can't even see Him. We worship ourselves, that apart from faith, we can't please God, that everything we do, even humanitarian efforts, good things, ultimately we make about us. Uh, The theologian Augustine hinted at this, and Martin Luther later on, the idea that apart from Jesus, all the good things we attempt to do ultimately curve back to us. You help other people because it makes you feel good about yourself. But in Christ, our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. That we, we still, I mean, yeah, heart of flesh. We still battle sin, but we now have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a new heart to believe with. That we can be burdened to meet the needs of others more significant than us because we want to out of joy, out of genuine love, and that brings the Lord glory. If we take this verse by itself, if we just preach verse 3 today, it's Scripture. It's powerful. But if we take it out of its context and try to do that on our own, apart from grace, that is crushing. We know we fail at doing this. All of us. Friend, hear this today. If this is something that maybe you haven't trusted Jesus yet or maybe you're struggling, but you cannot earn God's love. You can't do this well enough that he would save you by that. You can't merit his grace. No good deed will ever be enough. No praying, no fasting would ever be enough. You can't earn it. But friend, there is grace in Christ and it's free. He's good. He offers that to you freely. All of us as Christians, we cannot ever hear that enough. This is important. Let's look back at chapter 2, but we're going to move up to verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 we just saw, they flow from something really important. All this flows from verse 1. In logic, this is what we call an if-then statement. If these things are true, then this should be the result. And Paul does that. All of these things, others is more significant than yourself, they all flow from the gospel. They're a response what has happened in your heart, what Jesus has done. So what are the ifs that Paul gives? Look at verse one with me. If there's any encouragement in Christ, meaning the salvation and the righteousness that you've been clothed with, brought into a kingdom without end, then do this. If you found comfort in his love or from other brothers and sisters, if you've participated in the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your heart, affection and sympathy. If you have these things, if, you, if Jesus has saved you and these are true, then do this. That's why we can serve each other with humility. Because humility looks away from yourself. Christ gives that to us. Apart from this, we can't. We don't have time today, but I encourage you either today or tomorrow, there's a f- you, some of you I know have read it before, but there's a famous hymn 
following this in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where Jesus is our example. He's the ultimate servant. He's the king. He's the one we look to. He makes all of this possible. Friend, if you're reading this and you're not sure it describes you, or if you know you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, meaning you've repented, you've turned from your sin to Jesus and trust in His finished work on the cross as your only hope. Friend, I want to implore you, look to Christ this morning. You can be reconciled to God. You have life. You can find it in Jesus. Turn to Him. Believe. Trust but even for Christians, this text is hard. We battle the flesh. We know that as Christians, we still do. But friends, we're not without hope. If you failed in this, there's grace. Repent and turn to him. He's loving. He's good. But at the same time, we can't hope to accomplish or do any of this apart from Jesus. Because the gospel is the jet fuel that allows us to do that. It sends us forward, enables us, enables us, and makes us want to, with joy, serve our brothers and sisters in this way. So as we conclude, I want to go back to the idea of the aspen trees. So I painted that picture of all these trees together, a bunch of them. I did some more research. I was fascinated by that. The largest stand or group of them in the world is in the American state of Utah. And when I say that, the root system underground weighs 6,600 tons. Because all the trees together, it's actually one organism. So when a forest fire comes, opposition from the outside, eventually the trees regenerate. There's a protection there. That those that are tall, that, that get nourishment from the sun, can help support other trees in there. An inward unity. It's a picture that. It's almost as if dependency and the need for others is woven into the fabric of creation. So friends, let's stand side by side today. As Christians, we're citizens of the same kingdom. We need each other. We, opposition suffering, we know will come, so we stand side by side together. We need encouragement, so we stand side by side supporting each other, selflessness and, and humility. So friends, let's live today going forward as citizens worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that they're convicting and encouraging Thank you for making us citizens of Christ's kingdom, something that none of us deserve. Oh, what a gift that is. Would you help us by your spirit to stand side by side, caring for each other, this, this belonging that we all share. And we thank you for Jesus, the one in whom we find encouragement, the one in whom we find hope. Oh, Lord, would you impress these truths upon our hearts today? Will they be on our minds? Will they be on our lips? Will they be in our hearts? Help us. We need you. We praise you. We thank you for all of this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.